Ah, you've come to help me find the Zero Room. Welcome aboard. I'm the Doctor. Or will be if this regeneration works out. And with the Howl version of the theme still ringing in our ears, welcome everyone to this special Australasian episode of the 42 to Doomsday podcast. My name is Rob. My name is Mark. And my name is Jono. And of course, we welcome Jono from the Zeus Pod podcast all the way across the water in New Zealand. Jono, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's very nice to be here. Uh, The miracle of the internet, Mark, isn't it? It's fantastic. So, Jono, uh, Zeus Pod, how long has it been running for? How did you start it? Podcast itself has been going since uh, pretty much the week before Series 8 started, so I guess that's... Uh, was that late late August I think um, mm. and it actually started the very very first beginning part started in 2006 where uh, a friend of mine Peter Adamson uh, who has been in uh, New Zealand fandom for um, just as long as I have pretty much uh, he was a cartoonist writer artist and uh, TSV at that point was kind of like the main magazine for uh, New Zealand fandom it was like the bible and um, what we wanted to do because it was you know it was very very uh, intelligent read very interesting lots of sort of fans from around the world and lots of uber fans writing for it that we wanted to do something a little bit more sort of offbeat and around that time uh, the Doctor Who fan club had started doing pub meets like I think once every month so we thought oh what a perfect opportunity to, to kind of create like a little tiny fanzine uh, once a month that can be handed out at these pub meets and I think they've did something quite similar at the um, at the tavern Fitzroy Tavern in London so you'd go along and and when all the sort of fans met there I think in the 90s and there'd be little sort of mini pocket zines handed out and we created Zeus Plug which obviously uh, is the bitten hand of fear that the doctor asks from Sarah Zeus Plug um and it was essentially an A3 sheet kind of folded up to be about A6 and you'd kind of unfold it like a beautiful flower um, and and read it and it was kind of a bit offbeat there was some fun stuff in there uh, we said we'd never do lists and you know issue two had a lot of lists in it and um, and it was fun it was great I think we went for about sort of eight issues and, and then um, I actually moved over to London so I couldn't do it anymore and it sort of died for a little bit and then we turned it into a blog so it went online so it was Zeus blog and then uh that sort of sort of died away a little bit as well and then last year series eight was coming up and it's like we've got to do something we've been talking about a podcast forever and there weren't any other New Zealand podcasts at all barely any Australian ones I think as well um and we thought damn it let's do it and we recorded one for, as a trial and said we'd never go over half an hour and um, every single episode's been over an hour so we haven't sounds familiar to, yeah yeah we've managed to keep it under an hour and a half that was that's that's currently the limit but um, yeah it's been going now for quite a while we did series eight we then pushed into doing a few little specials we had an interview with Peter Davison which was quite good um, and uh, some like sort of one-off specials about like the fashion of Doctor Who and things, and then we did Juice uh, Pod with extra seasoning, which is our current form, uh, sort of the wilderness months filler, I guess. And uh, that's basically where uh, two 
well-known podcasters or Doctor Who fans and myself basically sort of throw two series of the show together, randomly drawn, and uh, essentially pick a winner. <laughs> Pretty straightforward uh, way of doing it, but yeah, so it's 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 going well. We're sort of gearing up for series nine as well, which I suppose is only sort of two or three, four months away. And what's the reception been to the podcast, John? Do you get a lot of feedback from listeners? It's been really good. I mean, it's it started off as a as I guess a you know New Zealand podcast, but it's sort of pretty much straight off the bat started to move into I guess something that could be seen as I don't know an international one. Um, it's not overly specific to New Zealand anymore, I guess. Um, and that's mainly just because I started inviting people on. Neil Perryman, who's the writer of uh, the Amazing Wife in Space blogs. Have you guys read that? Yeah, we read the book. It was great. Yeah, it's good, very good. Great book. And followed the blog as well. So it's it's become sort of bigger like that. And I think we I was on Radio Free Sky recently doing one of their commentaries. And that's just been a massive boost as well. So yeah, really good response from people. I think it's it's always hard to bring a podcast into a pretty saturated Doctor Who podcast world. I mean, you just have to Google on iTunes, I guess, sort of Doctor Who podcast, and there's hundreds, <laughs> hundreds of them. Um, so that's always tricky, just like anything new. But I think a, a small but um, steadily growing following, I think I'd say. Just got to keep plugging with it, John. Yeah. Well, this is, you know, that's why I come on to your show, <laughs> to hopefully tap into your audience. I'm sure all, all five of them will really enjoy it. <laughs> now, you, you mentioned New Zealand fandom before, John. What, what is the state of New Zealand fandom now or today, I suppose? It's quite strange. I mean, it's, I think if you look at the show as it is now, uh, it's, it's rating really well when it goes on TV. Um, it's constantly the number one uh, show on Prime TV for the evening when uh, it screens here. Prime TV is the TV channel that it screens on. Um, you look at something like the Doctor Who Symphonic Spectacular, which was in Auckland. It was at the Victor Arena, which is sort of one of our biggest indoor uh, entertainment arenas. And the place was absolutely sold out. It was insane. It was absolutely insane. I went there thinking, you know, they might have a few empty seats and that sort of thing. Completely sold out. Half the people in costumes, merchandise lines going out the door. So there's obviously a huge love for the show here, but fandom, kind of, I guess, fandom as I knew it back in the sort of early to late 90s, um, I'm not sure really exists anymore. I think it's maybe moved into more of a online basis rather than actual... A social. Sort of, yeah, rather than a social yeah. thing. I mean, the pub meets kind of, they sort of popped up for... a numerous years i think maybe five or six years and they died away we sort of tried to resurrect them recently um as sort of zeus pub it was going to be the fourth <laughs> part of our of our franchise and it just got an absolute zilch response for it um so i think that maybe that sort of more social aspect has gone um it's probably not helped by the fact that the fan club itself i think is pretty much uh I think it's still there, but it's not really too active. I mean, I think the last issue of TSV was about five years ago, um, which is a shame because it was a great little... It is a good magazine. Yeah. yeah. Um, that was At its height, I mean, that was getting some incredible writers on it. Yeah, uh, and, some and amazing interviews, interviews as well. Yeah, the interviews are brilliant. Um, uh, but I think it's just time, you know, people's lives <laughs> move on and there's, you know, you... you, you have work and you have kids and you have you know marriages and everything and, and so i think that maybe people just are peering back i mean I, I i have been quite enjoying only doing 
a podcast a month mm. <laughs> for the last for the last three or four months um and see even sort of looking at series nine and going gosh okay got to commit to one a week for essentially 14 weeks uh <laughs> is a is a you know it's a big it is a big oh. commitment isn't it and that's why i'm in, in such admiration for people like radio free scarrow who every week you know on yeah. on the the saturday or sunday or whenever it comes out here a new episode comes out that's incredible mm. but i think yeah for fandom fandom as such i i, I wouldn't say that there's any active fandom in the old school mm. sense um in new zealand currently and we're certainly the only podcast and i was actually surprised to hear that you guys were you know out of all the specific doctor who podcasts there's only really two in australia which is amazing in itself we're sort of seen as a poorer cousins australian and new zealand fandom it's always been the uk and, and the us and, and canada mm. So I don't know whether it's just a state of fandom in this country, in your country, or or the fact, is it just the UK guys and the US guys are much more enthusiastic about it and are willing to commit time and energy to doing podcasts and, and events and, and things like that? Yeah, well, maybe. I mean, there's, there's more of them, isn't there? Um, yeah, <laughs> that's much more. The um, well, there's 20 million of us and there's 4 million <laughs> yeah, of you. Yeah. Um, I think they've also had just more access to things over there. I mean, the show screens in the uk um live um i suppose it almost screens live here now which is incredible because it used to be at mm. least a three-month wait for the new series originally um but i think also that there's more access to conventions over there and there's more access to go and watch the filming um whereas i think here it's you have the occasional thing like we had i guess armageddon um whilst it's not specific on doctor who there's definitely a doctor who element to that uh, I think you guys had the, a couple of conventions over there as well recently. We have the Lords of Time conventions here and Matt Smith's coming to Melbourne next month as well. Is he? Yeah. Him and Karen Gill and, and Alex Kingston are doing a convention uh, over here. I don't know if they're going over to New Zealand no. either, but I'm, they're certainly doing the traps around here. Was there one called like the Four Doctors a few years back where it was, or yes. the Three Doctors or something? And that was, I think that was actually the Laws of Time, wasn't it? Yeah. The original yeah. one. And they, they came here, the three, I think it was McGann, McCoy, Davison and Baker? Colin, Colin Baker, yeah. yeah. But that's it. I mean, the, the Symphonic Spectacular is the first thing that's happened here in a long time. I know that Karen Gillan's coming for Armageddon in July, September, something. So she must be coming over to the Armageddon in Australia as well. Do you guys have Armageddon over there or something like a Comic-Con or something? Yeah, we do. We do have Armageddon. To be honest, I don't go to them. Right. <laughs> and I know Rob doesn't go to them either. A few from my friends go to them because they like, there's other sci-fi um, franchises they like as well. Two big guests this last time were um, Jenna Coleman and MacGyver. Oh, MacGyver. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's your Doctor Who link through Terry Nation, of course. Well, exactly. And, um, <laughs> and well, he, it, it said it, he was MacGyver. He perhaps doesn't look quite like MacGyver did in the eighties anymore. Maybe, just just <laughs> nobody does. Jono, you mentioned uh, before at Time Space Visualizer TSV the, the fanzine of the New Zealand Doctor Who fan club of New Zealand. Yes, <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, we all know what I mean. Um, that was, as you said before, that was. Uh, I, I mean, I read a lot of and bought a lot of fanzines in the nineties and the early two thousands, and, and mm. TSV was always the best written, the most literate, the, the the one that seemed to get the best writers. For mm. um, New Zealand is a small country, and yet you had a lot of talented writers contributing to that. And I, I think one of the last editors, uh, Adam Christopher, 
He's mm. moved to the UK and has translated himself into quite a successful and, and prolific uh, writer of science fiction and 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 uh, and, uh, and horror. Yeah. What, what, what do you see as the reason behind that? I mean, the TSV being so good as it was. I think it had a very very passionate um, team behind it. I think Paul Schoons, who I who I keep in touch with now, he's on the podcast quite regularly. Mm. Um, he lives literally 10, 15 minutes away from me. Um, he was just the the driving force behind New Zealand fandom through well he started the he started TSV and then a club started in the 80s in Christchurch and then TSV and the club he sort of took it over when everyone had sort of got sick and tired of it in Christchurch and didn't want to do it anymore and created TSV as it became and that was uh you know he he put out an issue every two months Jeez. for well I'm trying to think his first issue was like 21 when he took it back and I think it got to I want to say 76 and that was pretty much it wasn't once every two months to start with and then it went on to like once every three months and I think by the end it was like twice a year but still I mean the stuff that was in it they were getting incredible writers um a lot of good interviews as you said and I'm not sure why that is I think it's maybe just because quality attracts quality well exactly and just um again maybe sort of with Paul becoming more and more involved with the actual um, not the show production side of things, but like the, he he did a lot of the production subtitle, mm. uh, like production yeah. notes for the DVDs. Um, I think you know finding a missing episode probably helps you your <laughs> credibility a little bit, doesn't it? <laughs> it gives you a lot of street cred. Just ask Phil Morris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> if only we could ask Phil Morris. Well, don't think I haven't <laughs> requested an interview. I've heard nothing bad. Oh, you guys have too. Oh yeah. Yeah. Maybe we should try together and see what happens. But um, yeah, I think he he he's a brilliant guy, and he uh, really pushed that whole fan club forward. You know, if it wasn't for him, basically, I don't think there'd really be any fandom even around then, as as we know it, as it was. Um, Adam came on, I think, for about three or four issues at the end, and actually did some quite interesting stuff from a design point of view. But again, uh, I think he moved to the UK, and it was just a case of. Who's got the time to do it anymore? You know, it is hard. Fandom can sometimes rely on the, the really hard work of you know two or three dedicated people, and when understandably they move on, um, there's, there, oftentimes it's hard to hard to find the same people to fill the spots with the same sort of dedication and yep. and, uh, and and pull. So yeah, it's a bit. I mean, we found the same here in, in Victoria, haven't we, Mark? And we've talked about this before that uh, the internet is 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 to blame for a lot of things including probably stealing our jobs in 10 or 20 years. And uh, <laughs> and it's basically gutted fandom, really. I mean, the, the club here in Victoria is still going along, but it's it's nowhere near as vibrant as I recall it in the 90s. And I, I think, you know, Jono's sort of talked about that with regards to New Zealand. It's funny how, you know, the show's back and it's kicking goals and it's sort of mass public slash audience appreciation. And yet it just hasn't converted into uplifting local fandom. I, I mean, I'm going to put it out there. I don't think that we're... Uh, it, we're we're part of that anymore. Or well, not not that we're not part of it, but I think it's it's not our own thing anymore. I think fandom used to be something that you'd sort of <laughs> like not like cling together, but sort of it was it was very much a sort of a small group for a small show. Like it was that small dedicated following. And now that it's had this huge mass appeal, and you're you know you're going along to a, a concert with six thousand people going i don't know any of these people i've never seen them before but they're all dressed up they're all enthusiastic they're all you know mm. totally loving doctor who but you don't know any of them um 
I think it's just that it's it's I don't know it's such a huge public thing now you almost have to sort of like give it over and say well look what we clutched onto and kept alive on life support for <laughs> 16 years and now we bequeath to you and maybe that's it maybe the maybe fandom is now those huge events where you go along you know like a symphonic spectacular or a convention and that's that's your fandom right there I think you're absolutely right and we just can't look like a bunch of curmudgeons sitting in the corner going, I was around when the show was really bad. Mm. And in a sense, us, you know, handing on the torch, as it were, to this new mass audience, uh, the, the mass audience is going to ensure the series' success, you know, long into the future. I mean, I, I, I think sometimes the people underestimate how long the new series can go. Yeah. I mean, American TV series, you know, typically last seven or eight or nine years. I can see Doctor Who in its current incarnation, assuming they get a new a showrunner show as talented as, say, Moffat to come up in the next couple of years. I can't see the show going off for another f- at least five or six years. Mm. Didn't they just have the news that they've got an eight-year plan from now? Well, exactly so, right. Yeah. Forget about the last eight-year plan. We'll just start <laughs> the new one now. A showrunner as talented as Moffat. We should t- come back on that point at some point, <laughs> I think. <laughs> Moving on. No, no, no. I mean, I have, my prof- I have my problems with Moffat, and I've aired them before, sometimes incoherently, but... I, I think we we can all acknowledge that you know simply as a, a writer who's not obsessed with certain things he can be very good. Mm. Yeah. Yep. No, I agree. I I just I yeah I think his his first and his last season so far have been excellent. Mm. The yes. least said about the middle two, the better. I think. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So uh, that was our look at New Zealand fandom. Uh, we'll move on to our main topic. <laughs> With John Owen on our latest episode, we're going to be talking about the Peter Davison era. Uh, Peter Davison was a marked departure from previous actors' portrayals. While he derided as wet or weak, he until Tennant was regarded as the most human of the Doctors. Uh, with 30 years of hindsight, uh, what can we all say about his portrayal and uh, whether in fact it was a template for the more emotional or fallible Doctors we see today? It's funny now, looking back at the Fifth Doctor, and um, sort of, it's hard for me now to detach Peter Davison the man we know now who's so actively involved in the show from the doctor that he played i think when he left the show and sort of had i guess that we sort of wasn't around for a while was he sort of had that sort of 10 20 year break from the show and then came back to be involved with it so strongly um the fifth doctor was kind of its own little sort of pocket and now it just i i'm I almost feel more love towards the Fifth Doctor because Peter Davison is so passionate about the show now and so much behind it. Um, but the Fifth Doctor era is where I started watching it. Uh, my very first t- uh, show ever was The Five Doctors. Um, and we had this amazing like uh, 25th anniversary weekend screening. In, or no, it was like a week-long screening in New Zealand in 1988 yes that's right it's silver nemesis first before the rest of the world you lucky people we did yeah wow i know i know it's brilliant oh gosh um so and they showed like dalek invasion of earth and i think seeds of death and the five doctors and the five doctors was incredible it's weird that that's my first one to watch because i'm i don't know how i could have understood what on earth was going on it's not a standard doctor who story um but um so the five doctors and all the stories around it, things like snake dance. I remember seeing, um, when I was young, getting really freaked out with Tegan with all the lipstick around her eyes and the, you know, the whiskey and cigarettes voice that she got at that point. 
Uh, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Why don't you start speaking like that? Yeah. Um, so it's, I, I feel very close to that era. Um, in hindsight, though, looking back on it, um, I think the Fifth Doctor is a bit whiny uh, and is a bit sort of ineffectual and can get quite flustered. Um, but I quite like that. I think when you look at it in, in conjunction with what's before and after him, like Tom Baker, who or the Fourth Doctor, who was so sure of himself and completely unflappable, really, and you know, you never really thought that he might not win the day. Whereas with the Fifth Doctor, sometimes it just really does feel like he doesn't know what on earth he's doing, and he does get quite freaked out and worried. And yeah, I quite like it in context because then you go to Baker, and it's and he's a lot more kind of I know what I'm doing, even if it's completely wrong. So. Um, in a, to cut a long story short, I think that the Fifth Doctor has his place. I think it would have been a mistake if JNT had cast because um, he was he was eyeing off Richard Griffiths, wasn't he, as a replacement for Tom Baker? And I think it would have been a mistake if he actually went down that path because I can see big similarities between Griffiths and Tom Baker. Mm. JNT always talks about contrast. Well, he used to, um, and Davison was the biggest contrast to Tom Baker ever. It's funny you mentioned that uh, the Five Doctors was your first story you watched, Davison wise. I remember I was I watched Doctor Who on and off in the UK when I used to live there, and when we moved out to Australia, the first story I remember tuning back into almost it was actually by accident was Ark of Infinity Part Four. Not the most auspicious of starts, you where yeah, because he's got <laughs> Rice Krispies stuck to his face, he's running up and down Amsterdam, and then from then I just went from casual viewer to a fan. So when I look back on the Davison era now, that is the one I grew up with, and that's the one I have the most um, nostalgia for. If you became a fan after watching Ark of Infinity Part 4, then you you are a true fan, sir. <laughs> you really are. Yeah, I know. Um, if it was Snake Dance, I'd probably have a... It would make a lot more sense or something like that. But yeah, Ark of Infinity yeah. is not... Let's be honest, it's not the most uh, greatest of stories anyway. But uh, yeah, when I look back now on the Davison era, I think it's... Look, it has its faults. Like, every era has its faults. When you look back at the classic era now, sort of going back to Rob's point, the classic era was emotionally stunted, wasn't it? The only time it really got vaguely emotional was when a companion left, or when a doctor left. In terms of having Davison's character, the fifth doctor's character not winning was really refreshing as well, because like in Earthshock and, and Castrovale from Caves, as you said, John, I, you just thought he was going to lose it. Worries the deep. He did lose it, really. Well, he sort of... Do yeah. you blame him? That's a classic example. Like, you know, just everyone dies. But it's funny, though, because we were talking... I was recording about season 15, and we were talking about uh, Horror of Fang Rock. And everyone dies in there, but the, the Doctor just kind of goes, Great, well, that's it. <laughs> We've done it. Your eyes have changed colour. Goodbye. And, and whereas I think, yeah, the fifth Doctor, that sort of same thing does happen, but it, he, he, it shows... Mm. And um, it affects him, I guess. That's refreshing when you've got instead of sort of you know, the fourth Doctor essentially just swanning off into the distance, yeah, laughing. <laughs> I think Davison was let down by some of his material as well. I mean, if you if you look at some of the writing, but when you compare it to say a Frontios Caves and Earthshock, you know, the writing on that is actually quite strong, and with mm. with with really good direction behind him as well, he can deliver the goods. 
But unfortunately, with some things like, let's say, Black Orchid and, and Time Flight and Arkham Infinity, which are just wet, that portrayal is, is seen as wet. What's wrong with Black Orchid? Oh. What's Black Orchid? It's only two parts. It's two parts too long. Let's just wind it right back. What are your memories of the Davis era? Is that when you became a fan? or? No, I was. A, I mean, I was a fan during the mid to late eight, uh, 70s with the sort mm. of endless repeats of the Pertwee and, and Baker era on, on the ABC. So I was very much a fan. I sort of grew up with that authoritative doctor that you know Pertwee and, and Baker exemplified um so and I remember watching uh the last episode of Legopolis on a four inch black and white television screen so you know Peter Davison was quite small uh, when he first <laughs> appeared but it, entropy was working I mean I, I did and, and at about that stage I would have been 11 or 12 so, uh, but I did note the difference in the portrayal that we were getting and the sort of the stories that we were, we were being given I mean as we've discussed before Davison's character as the fifth doctor was a deliberate contrast to Baker. You couldn't go, couldn't have gone with the same sort of strong, uh, you know, character. It, it, it just wouldn't have worked. I mean, the, the, why would you do that? I mean, when you've got the chance to change the lead actor, you go with a contrast. And I, I think that um, Davison, I was from what I've read, was certainly willing to embrace that. And I think the problem sometimes faced with you know the, the portrayal of the fifth doctor is the fact that the people who helped create his character, say um, Bidmead, for instance, they moved on very, mm. very quickly into his tenure. And his first season effectively has three script editors, Bidmead, Root, uh, and Eric Sayward. And so you, you, you have a contrast from a person... Uh, so Bidmead is very interested in the sort of scientific approach to the show, whereas Eric Sayward is your, is your typical... Well, not typical, but 80s action gung-ho sort of thing as exemplified in a blood and thunder story like Earthshock. But mm. when you look at Castrovalva, and it's it's a more, uh, I think the word someone fairy used tale, to, fairy tale, but elegaic, sentimental, mournful story in a sense. Whereas you go to the other end of this of that season, and it's you know it's Cybermen shooting everyone left left right and center. And I mean, I I look upon the Davison era with a great deal of fondness. I I, I like Davison's portrayal. Sure, some of the stories mm. don't stand up, but I mean, you're going to see that in any series of Doctor Who. I mean, you're going to have six or seven stories per season. None, not all of them can be stunners. You're going to just with the, the exigencies of, of budget and time and SFX. It's just not going to work. And I mean, Arc, Arc of Infinity we've mentioned with the sort of prancing chicken in the tomb or in the under, underground thing. It just looks, it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous story. But, you know, Davison, I think anyway, manages to, manages to always shine through even in sort of the worst stories of his era. And we all know how what Caves of Androzani is about. We all know the portrayal that he, he brought to that. I mean, that's a fantastic... That's probably one of the best portrayals of a Doctor in the series. He hits all the right notes. And it's in a sense, it's a pity it's only for one story. But mm. if anyone sort of says Davison was incapable of being strong or he was wet or anything like that, I just you know point, point people to Caves of Androzani. Really strong p- p- portrayals in, say, in, in Frontios, uh, Earthshock. I mean, these, these, are, these are really good performances. Um, and he's playing the character as he wanted to and as J&T asked him to. And uh, it, it's, a, it's a more human and fallible approach. And I think as you get older as a viewer, um, I appreciate that more because the sort of characters or lead actors or portrayals that we're seeing in modern television today are full of people who are not you know 100% straight through heroes or 100% straight through strong and commanding. They're, they're flawed and they're fallible. I think... Um... Caves of Indrazani is a great um, summation of the Fifth Doctor, really, in a way, because if if he hadn't been a character that had been fallible or you know could might not win, 
then there wouldn't really be any tension in Keizer and Drazani. But I think what, what makes Keizer and Drazani even better is that the Doctor knows that he's fallible in that incarnation and knows that he can, he may not be able to win. So so the audience thinks that, and he thinks it, which is why he's so desperate, because I think he he's just going, well, it's got to throw everything at this because chances are I might not be able to do this. Whereas if you look at like a, I don't know, a Pertwee or a, or a Tom Baker portrayal, um, they have such sort of confidence, their doctors have such confidence that generally, you know, even if you look at something like Planet of the Spiders, Pertwee and that was his swan song the doctor still thinks that he can do it he still thinks that he can win he just knows that he'll die at the end of it whereas with with Keizer and Dazani the doctor has no clue in fact he thinks he's oh. going to die and not regenerate at the end of it so I think that's why that's so brilliant it's 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 we it's not just us that know that he could fail he knows himself that there's a likelihood that he will well in actual fact at least two of those four episodes it features the doctor facing his death I mean the execution yeah. scene Right at the, at the end of episode one, and in the ep- end of episode three, which is probably the, one of the great cliffhangers of the yeah. whole series, he, he is facing his death, and 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 that that's in a sense what makes him heroic and such an appealing character. He's fighting against his perceived flaws. He's going, you know, even though he might fail, he's he's not going to stop in his pursuit of you know of winning out in a sense. What a way to go. I mean, we've sort of skipped to the end a wee bit, but um, <laughs> uh, it's interesting jumping back a little bit to, to what you were saying about, you know, every season has a couple of clunkers in it. I think the only thing when you look back at the Fifth Doctor era is that there's there aren't that many good stories in it, like really good, strong stories, I think. Uh, Kazer and Drazani, take that out. Let's assume that everyone knows it's mm-hmm. a classic. Mm. Um, what are the other really strong stories? Maybe Earthshock? I guess, though that has its detractors. I think every mm-hmm. story is going to have detractors because I'd probably go for like Frontios, Snake Dance. Visitation's good. I used to, I'd never liked Kinder when I was younger, but now I actually really enjoy watching Kinder now. If you're expecting Stone Cold Classics like season 14 every week, you're not going to get it with the Davison era. But I think there's a lot of good stuff in the middle, but unfortunately there's not much really, really good stuff. If the Davison era isn't marked with a lot of classics as such, like say, as Mark said, season 14... What were the factors that might have been holding it back? I mean, I know one of the com- most common complaints at the time and, and since was that, you know, with four people in the TARDIS, it was probably too, too, too many. Um, is, is that a factor yeah. or are there other factors that are at play? Direction is definitely a big factor, I reckon. I mean, you saw what uh, a Harper can do to Caves and, and what Grimway could do to Earthshock when you've got people like Ron Jones and... A couple of the others whose names names escape me because they're just obviously not that good. They're just bland. They're bland, and they probably could do. I I, I think the problem also is you had as you, as you mentioned before, Rob. You had three. It was inconsistent with script editors. You had three different script editors in one year. It took it a while for Eric Sober to get going. I don't think he ever did. The only time I think he really succeeded in Davison years was from Awakening to Caves. That block of stories in season 21 is probably the strongest work he did. Apart from The Awakening. You don't like The Awakening, Jono? And Resurrection of the Daleks. This is this thing, like I look back on the era quite fondly and yet actually when you drill down to it, I, I don't know, they're just, there are strong little blips, but I wouldn't say there's sort of like a good standard with some bad bits. It's more bad bits with some, with some strong pieces coming through. And I say bad, I don't know Doctor Who's really bad, but, um, but you just look at things like, Terminus. I don't think I've ever watched the whole thing. Enlightenment is okay. Mordor and Dead's alright, but then Ark of Infinity. 
King's Demons. Have you watched it? <laughs> Look, I have had the misfortune to watch it a couple of months ago. And yeah, it's 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 not that great. It's not that great at all. So are we looking back at the Davison era now more through a rose-tinted glasses point of view, you think? I think so. I mean, I'm looking, I look at it just for purely from a nostalgia point of view because it's, you know, mm. these things that I remember watching as a kid going, this is amazing. But now you're right. It's, it is that, what's the best directed Davison story? Caves of Androzani. And which is the best um, Davison story? Caves of Androzani, obviously. Um <laughs> But look at the blandness that kind of comes across some of these things. You're so right with the direction. Things like, um, well, King's Demons. Sorry to come back to it, but classic example of just, you know, bad direction because it just nothing. It just looks like they're literally pointing a camera at a set. They are. I mean, how can they make a sword? How can they make a sword fight that uninteresting? It doesn't make any sense. Um, uh, Warriors of the Deep overlit. And um, that's a brilliant one for direction. Sure, you might have a uh, you know terrible monster, but if you light it right, and if you shoot it right, then surely you can make it look slightly menacing rather mm. than sort of flappy. Is there a good script in Warriors of the Deep, though, if you think about it? I actually think the script's okay. As you said, Jono, a lot of it's the production is let down. Mm. It's just a sh- well, it's the same old thing, isn't it? It's like very quick resolution at the end with the with the... If you, if, if you can say the name of the gas, you, you're doing Exochromite, well. isn't it? Oh, well, well done. No, it's, it's, it's not that difficult. <laughs> in um, I, there, there are some good scripts in, in there. It's just, it's funny. You look back and you just, I really struggle to kind of get too passionate about any one single story above and beyond Caves, I think. And Five Doctors. I've got a very, very, very soft spot for Five Doctors. Well, then, given that, looking back after 30 years... Is it simply Davison's portrayal that leaves us with fond memories? If the stories are, you know, no better than, say, average in the main, mm. uh, is it just, you know, we love Peter Davison, we love what he brought to the series, we love his portrayal, and we love the fact that now uh, he's come back and embraced the series to a great extent. Is that what we're really enjoying about that era? I think a lot of it is, if I look, if I look at it honestly, it's when I became a fan. A lot of my mm. life was consumed by, by Doctor Who when I was 12 or 13 years old. I couldn't stop mm. talking about it. And it was the most exciting show on television. And, and you know, the five Doctors, Jono, I mean, it'd be like, yeah, I was absolutely captivated. I was so excited to see that damn thing. Even yeah. now, I'm still excited to watch it. <laughs> it's funny, like, Davison was the Doctor I first watched. And he was the Doctor that was everywhere sort of around me when you know all the target books generally the ones you get the easiest were the ones of you know the nice sort of photo cut out of him like the the terminus one is brilliant just like what's he doing on that cover it's like sort of pulling some weird lever thing i don't know um so so he was around and like things like the the um uh the posters you could buy and all that kind of stuff it was all davison and and weirdly i i don't see him as my doctor at all in fact he probably wouldn't even be top three doctors and i think if you a lot of people when you know who they grow up with or who their first doctor is that's their doctor right so would, would that be the same for you guys peter davison is my doctor oh, you're wow. absolutely right yeah he, and even even though we sort of slag his ear off to bits it's like that film flash gordon it's not a very good film is it but nostalgia carries it yeah. on and you can overlook a lot of the um the fault to that film except for the music which is brilliant but um, yeah, I, I just think nostalgia does play a heavy part, and unfortunately, in, in some instances, it clouds my overly critical judgment. Because as a twelve-year-old and a thirteen-year-old, I was lapping it up and loved mm. it. I'm just not sure that the Davison era 
um, would be the one that I would jump to in my DVD collection if I wanted to watch a Doctor Who. In fact, anything sort of post-Baker, uh, I don't know, maybe it's just too familiar, um, but it's not stuff that I would want to sort of sit down and go, yes, because there isn't... I'd say there's like a bit of a lack of warmth throughout the whole series as well, those three years. Like people talk about the sort of the coldness of season 18 and that kind of thing. I'm not sure a lot of the, the Davison stories were that much fun, whereas most of Baker's were, definitely the Pertwee's were, even some of Colin Baker's were, but but what's a fun romp? Visitation. Oh, visitation. Okay, I'll give you that. Visitation is a romp, but the rest of them are quite earnest and there isn't maybe a, a massive amount of humour in them. That was J&T, though. That was uh, Tom Baker backlash, wasn't it? Is part of the reason then, well, one of the reasons could be the combative nature of the relationships between the Fifth Doctor and, and, and Adric and the Fifth Doctor and Tegan, at least in the first his first season. I mean, it's, it's hard to like people when they're at each other's throats to an extent. Well, the Edric thing, I mean, it just... Blow him up? <laughs> have an antagonistic relationship with him. Um, but I think the, the Tegan one's quite interesting because at least she has a little bit of a journey with him. Yes, she's mm. nagging for all of season 19, but by season 20, she's kind of almost forcing himself, forcing herself back on the TARDIS. Doesn't, doesn't the Doctor look so happy when he sees her again? <laughs> um, and by the end of it, like the whole resurrection of the Daleks thing, I still find Tegan's farewell scene to come a bit out of the blue because she's seen a lot and she seems to have been quite happy with all that at, up until that point. But I think at least she's got an arc, whereas with Adric, it was just sort of antagonistic because, well, why not? His arc is the uh, the, um, the the freighter, the, the flight path of the freighter towards the Earth. That's yeah. his arc. Yeah, an arc across the sky into a... Um, <laughs> gully somewhere and then come back and a big finish I mean as a study in contrasts could would Davison's era have been improved if it was simply say Tegan and the Doctor oh god no that would have been been, you need to have a Nyssa like for all I think that Nyssa's reasonably bland and not a very interesting character she she served a purpose Mm. which was to sort of act as the I guess the go-between maybe Tegan was just angry because she literally was stuck in one outfit for seven stories was it um did they ever get changed in the TARDIS that's that's still quite a strange thing Tegan kept her outfit on for seven stories that's quite strange isn't it I mean I change my outfit every day don't you I remember reading an issue of InVision where one of the writers had sat down and worked out in terms of length of adventure in terms of days that (laughs) series uh, season 19 took place over about 10 to 14 days of actual activity right so, I mean, no one in their right mind would wear the same clothes for 10 or 14 days straight. But, I mean, <laughs> yes, it's just a strange thing to read anyway. That's when the Doctor got rid of her in time flight because she, she just she started to smell a little. So we've touched upon season 19. Uh, what about season 20? Is it as bad as what we remember? Although you just touched upon this in your, one of your podcasts, Jono, so... Yeah, well, okay, so we look back on it. Um, it was with Warren Frey and Deb Stanish, um, and they... Uh, I think season 20 generally was actually not as bad as everyone quite remembered it to be. I think I think this thing is, isn't it? Like You, you get caught up in the whole fan thing of season 20's crap, it's just got all returning monsters in it, and it was, you know, continuity overload. But it's got some actually quite nice stories in it. I, I loved 
Modern Undead when I was a kid. I absolutely adored that whole four episodes. It was brilliant. Loved Turlo. Uh, loved the whole time switch thing between 1977 and 1983. The Brigadier coming back. That awesome little 30 seconds of flashback. That was awesome. Maudrin, if they're thinking that he's the Doctor when he's in Tom Baker's old coat and it was really cool. Hey, little bit of a um, weird trivia thing. I met at my last Doctor Who convention, pretty much my first and last one in the UK when I lived there, the two girls who played the young Tegan and Nyssa. Oh, did you? Yeah. <laughs> and it was quite weird because it, as part of this sort of package that you would buy, you'd get a photo with each of the guests. So it was brilliant. I got a photo with Tom Baker and Paul McGann and uh, Peter Davison and all these amazing people. And then these two sort of random... <laughs> sort of women in their sort of <laughs> middle yeah, women. late 30s, early 40s, uh, who, well, I think one continued to be an actress and one just, that was the only thing she ever did. So it was, it was probably more excited to have a photo with me than, than me with her because it was, <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, that was... Did they have like little autograph cards there? Yeah, so you'd, got, you'd get the photo and the autograph and it was, it was quite weird, that one. But anyway. That's like the, the human from Megloss. He's doing the convention circuit, I believe. Is he? Wow. Okay. Doctor Who fandom. It's just a strange beast, isn't it? They just keep yep. on digging, totally. don't they? But Mordred is great. And actually, the Enlightenment is a beautiful story. It is. Just looks fantastic. Um, a bit bonkers, but, you know, nicely acted. It looked great. Actually, see, now that I'm looking back over Davis's era, I'm picking up more and more stories that are actually quite good. So, but in amongst those, you've got Terminus. I mean, like I said before, I've hardly watched the whole thing. Why is that? Is it just putting you off or do you fall asleep by episode three? Or I just, I just struggle to maintain the attention span. I mean, I had to watch Time Lash a couple of days ago for um, Zeus Pod, which actually surprisingly isn't too bad. Ooh. I'm going to... I'm just putting it out there. I thought it was all right. There's some rubbish in there, but there's some really actually quite nice bits. But I think that it it suffers from having that sort of up and down quality to mm. it. I mean, Ark of Infinity, what else is there? Snake Dance, which is good. Oh, I see Snake Dance is great. It looks very, very, very studio-based, but yeah. it, it's still interesting. Things Demons, I've heard good things about that tonight. <laughs> No. Well, I, like I said in the podcast, it's like literally every second line in The King's Demons is King John going, So, my demon. <laughs> That's all he does. <laughs> Pretty much the entire time. Oh, uh, in season 20, it didn't help that the last story got cancelled. So it ended uh, prematurely with King's Demons, just like season 17 ended prematurely with um, Horns of Nymon. So mm. maybe if it had that Dalek episode at the end of it it would have given it that lift so it didn't end up on 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 king's demons should we just add five doctors to it so that it kind of feels (laughs) here's another question for you do you consider five doctors to be part of season 20 i think we talked about it on zeus pod as part of season 20 so i'm gonna say yes okay but not really (laughs) rob what do you think i don't care really (laughs) rob you have to care you're a doctor who fan you have to care i'm a bad doctor who fan remember um, you are. You are. I am a bit. But I'm just looking because I was I was looking through the Fifth Doctor uh, companion, uh, companion, the magazine they released in 2001. I was looking through the s- stories of season 20, and, and 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 I had heard that people you know say that season 20 is too obsessed with continuity, and some of the and the stories aren't particularly good. But I mean, all right, it doesn't you know take flight very well with Arc of Infinity, but Snake Dance I think we all get on board with is quite good. 
Mm-hmm. I, uh, like John said, I, I quite enjoy. I have good memories of, of Mordred Undead. Um, you know, the, you know, one of the few times that Doctor Who actually uses its time travel concept as the main part of its story. Um, yeah. Terminus. I look. I've, I was always a, a big fan of uh, of um, uh, of the Vikings and uh, this this sort of the, the you know the myths and legends that Odin and Thor and all that sort of thing. So I can get behind at least some of the the stylings of of the story. But it is a clunker more than anything else. Enlightenment. I've spoken about highly before. I mean, the, the first episode I think is 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 not peerless, but it's it's really really good. And and that, that, that cliffhanger, uh, one of the one, reveal, great reveal. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 great. King's Demons. I don't have any real strong memories of at all. I must confess. So that's my out on that. And if we're going to include, <laughs> if we're going to include the five doctors. I mean, a fan of a certain age watching that on first broadcast. Um, if you don't have you know warm nostalgic feelings for that, uh, your heart is cold cold stone i can quote any line from five doctors pretty much me too i just yeah. uh so like <laughs> can i oh dear hmm we could be playing the game of wrestlon at this very moment when the special edition vhs came out i remember watching it with uh, a mate of mine i was reciting it and my wife just comes in and she goes what the hell you know and i love it to bits the doctor wants revenge exactly don't do the mind probe though no, 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 no. It was the one line I wasn't going to yeah, do. So. Yeah. The weird way that um, Ainley says, these thunderbolts are everywhere. Like he's, <laughs> It's supposed to be weird. These thunderbolts are everywhere. <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, I just, it's so perfect. I mean, it's not the five doctors. It's kind of the three doctors in a bit. In a bit. But God, it's, it's so good. It's so watchable. Ah, oh, it's just wonderful. It's interesting. That era is now criticized for its overuse of continuity. But Five Doctors is one long celebration of the show's mm. show's history, um, and I think we can get all get on board board with that. Did that era of the show rely too heavily on continuity? Absolutely. Season twenty should have been new adventures, new monsters, and have the Five Doctors at the end to mm. celebrate its past. Definitely, there was too much. I mean, the Brigadier, yes, I would have had Mordrin. That was fine. But wasn't the use of continuity to that extent accidental? Haven't they? Haven't the people behind that always said, "Well, you know, we didn't realise it until Ian Levine piped up and said, you do realise.'" Yes, and then J and T said, "Oh, I've planned it uh, deliberately, so every uh, so the show can celebrate its past when it was actually accidental until Ian Levine pointed it out, and then J and T wrote the press release. So people were expecting a whole host of uh, monsters throughout the year, and all they got was the Black Guardians. The Mara from last series, and Omega from ten years ago. I mean, really, apart from the fans, yeah. who's going to rem- remember Omega? But getting back to Five Doctors, I mean, I, I loved it. I watched it uh, just before school. Uh, I think restarted after I'd given myself an injury on a motorbike, and uh, that's some of my strong memories of it. But um, yeah, it's just a, it's just a lovely story, and I think in getting Terence Sticks back for it, you you were able to get a writer who could just tell mm. a straight ahead story. Mm-hmm. without it getting too cluttered and then plug in all the elements of the series that everyone loved and I think you know part of the nostalgia value and the love for the, for that uh, particular story is the fact that you know in the UK you would very rarely have repeats um, and to be able to see all these old characters and all these old monsters in one 90 minute burst it would help people embrace mm-hmm. it with a great deal of affection perhaps I mean it doesn't make a lick of sense really the the actual reasonings why Baruza would actually bring all the doctors there and then put in monsters to fight against them. Like, like lovely line, you know, some mm. companions to help, old enemies to fight. Was it, why, do you, why? <laughs> why? Why would you put them in, in their way? They're there to turn off a switch so you can go in and grab a ring. That's right. Why are you making it harder for yourself? They should have made Omega the villain, actually. 
if they hadn't have bloody used them in Arkham Infinity, they could have. Mm. It would have made more sense. Well, not really. Still, that anti antimatter. But anyway, antimatter death zone, I should say. It's just so. Br- I think it's just nostalgia. It is the. It is the. I think it's the best of the multi Doctor stories. I'm not involving Day of the Doctor here, but out of the classic ones, absolutely the best out of the three, by a long shot. <laughs> All right, so we've uh, we've now entered uh, the season twenty one portion of the, dis- the of the discussion. Um, worries of the deep, Jono. Any thoughts? Uh, <laughs> it has some major flaws in it, doesn't it? Um, but then there's always room for kung fu in Doctor Who. Always room for kung fu. Um, so, what was I, she doing? What was she trying to do? Well, she was trying. To, uh, <sighs> where did she actually hit it? Did she actually even connect? with it is that how she got electrocuted or because it looked like she sort of just tapped it on the sort of the thigh with her sort of kung fu it is brilliant was it kung fu i thought she was having a fit (laughs) just i don't know even just thinking of it now is just making me laugh like i'm sure there must be a gif somewhere of it just like rotating like looping back and forth on that moment um, it's no wonder Michael Gray he actually saw that going out live and he, he, he copped a view of it and he goes that's what it what the it's hell off. is this yeah it's gone I think as a story as a storyline uh, it's it, okay it's okay I mean tapping into that Cold War mm-hmm. and back back in 83, 84 I think we those of us who were conscious of the possibility were quite mm. worried that a nuclear tipped missile was heading our mm. way um, and the, the sort of you know the simple the mirroring of the you know the, the, the Soviet Union and, and and the Americans with the East and West blocks. It was getting rammed down our throats a lot, wasn't it? It was that film, The Day After. The Day After, yep. They had war games. Yep. Film, Red threads, Dawn. Threads. Yeah, Threads. Um, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Tree Tribes. I mean... <laughs> Is that what that song's about? Yeah, I believe so. The video clip had um, Ronald Reagan in it and Gorbachev. But I mean, in terms of in terms of what the storyline was trying to do, I think we can get on board. But certainly the, the, the realisation of it was... You know, whoever was in charge of the light switch, the, the lighting at the, <laughs> on set should have been shot. But also, also the prop maker. I mean, what was with the little thing that? What what was it? The little computer thing that they had to plug into the computer at the end. And it looked like somebody had got like sort of like oh. a, um, a globe and chucked some little bits of like sticks in it and some Lego. Sorry, that's my little rant. I have a prop that, rant once a once a podcast, and that was that was it. That <laughs> that story could have benefited with a time meeting. Because you read the script, or even the book, and the book says the the, the sea station is decaying, it's mm. rusting, and then you get a sea base which has which has as, as much atmosphere as an IKEA mm. store. It's like how can you get it so wrong? I just don't understand it. Who is the director of this one? Pennant Roberts. Hmm. What was his next one to direct? One you watched uh, recently, Time Lash. Poor guy comes back to the show and gets slumped with those two. Like from there on in, like Awakening. I think awakening is pretty poor. Uh, that, that's pretty bad. I think. Um, I'd say that's on a par with King's Demons for me. No, awakening is much better than King's Demons. So be it. <laughs> I, I tell you one thing. I do remember when I was again those memories as a kid. This is the thing that um, the Davison era did so well. That you have these striking memories of quite terrifying things. So, you know, Tegan and Snake Dance getting possessed. This one, it was the little um, malice creature inside the TARDIS clinging to the to the column and yeah and just like how did it get in there and then it started to vomit do you remember it started to just like vomit <laughs> yes green goo they all vomited <laughs> uh, that was quite cool and the whole thing in the church with the with the at the time again terrifying as a kid but now it sort of looks like sort of 
push it out. It's like a face of bow kind of thing, but with sort of your cardboard eyes flitting back and forth. But well, I'm looking at a picture of it now, and it, it looks menacing when it's not yeah. moving. But um, like, yeah, the realization again is wanting. But the, yeah, uh, that's that's a criticism uh, that we can always point at Doctor Who, and usually it's the the script that elevates it. But sometimes uh, you, you you know it's just too much of a struggle. Like the Awakening. I like. Was it Polly? No, Polly was the actress who. Yeah, um, Jane yeah. Hampton. She was great. I mm. I liked her. She was good. See, Davison always did well with the older women, didn't he? Like, sorry, I'm he sorry, did. the Fifth Doctor did. If you look at sort of the people who he was best with, like um, Neris, uh Hughes from, oh, from Doctor Kinder, Todd, Doctor and, Todd, and yeah. uh, the Lady in Awakening, and there's somebody else that I'm trying to think of, like Beryl Reed in Earthshock. Yes. All these sort of he's good with the uh, with the sort of the older companion, I think, which is why I sort of the older artist. Yeah, but I think if you watch this one back again, I mean, it doesn't make a lot of sense, and it feels very overacted. I mean, those villages, um, or like the the Sir George, is it? Um, is it's all quite strange. Ernest. Yeah, earnest and a bit strange doesn't make a lot of sense. And uh, in a sense, is is the awakening almost like the the demons, but reduced down to two episodes? Well, a church explodes at the end. Yeah, I suppose so. Look, I, I like. I mean, it was originally a four-parter and it was condensed to two, and I think it works mm. much better as a two-parter. It's probably one of the, the best Peter Davison two-parters that they did. There's not a lot of choice. No, not really. Isn't it crazy at the time that you would that you would watch an entire story in two days, like because it was broadcast on mm. what, a Monday and a Tuesday night, I think. Yeah, that's pretty crazy, isn't yes. it? And I think it's a problem with the Davison era um, in terms of public. Uh, recognition and, and remembrance is that a season only lasted three yeah. months because on twice a week where in the 70s it was on once in the 60s once a week so it had that stability and it had that continuity mm. happening where it was over in three months and that was it and so basically his whole tenure was over in nine months and, and yeah. gone and doctors after that were <laughs> gone even quicker well his last season he was gone even quicker than that because he lost a whole story at the end that was ridiculous mm. what twin dilemma ridiculous well you know <laughs> better than death in heaven apparently rob i'll stand by that <laughs> okay, that's, that, is, that is that is nuts but... <sighs> uh, let's not no. go there that's for another podcast and then what's after rightening frontios when christopher h bidmead is uh writing for davison because he knows the character i just think he can just pull out the the nuances of, of that character out and he and davison's great in it that, that cliffhanger though another brilliant cliffhanger uh the episode one where the tardis is gone it's just a hat stand again more imagery yeah. that you remember as a kid like the hat stand just sitting in that pile of dirt or whatever it was Debris, and then yeah. turlo using yeah. it as like a weapon and things just oh Good stuff, but good stuff in amongst. Mm. I don't. Th- I've never really felt that attached to Frontios, either. I find it a hard watch to sit through. Do you watch like two or three episodes in one block, or do you like one watch an episode a day? Prefer to watch a story in one sitting. I think just for t- why. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I always watch one episode or two and then walk off for a couple of days and come back and I think it works yeah, a lot maybe. better. Try sitting through a Pertwee six-parter in one block. You just, Maybe. Yeah. Though, though Time Lash was great. I thoroughly enjoyed watching that in one chunk. <laughs> it was like watching... Because the, the Colin Baker one... Sorry to jump off topic, but the Colin Baker stories are, are actually quite nice to watch because you're it's like you're watching two new series-length 
episodes. It's like if you're watching a um a new series two parter, you'd watch the two parter in one go, wouldn't you? I would. I mean, my my time is precious, and I can't be lingering over a story over a number of, of nights or, or, or days. No. Um, if I can get a, if I can get a four episode story in, especially if it's a good one, like say uh, horror of Fang mm. Rock. Um, <laughs> I think I've talked about that before. I mean, I, I, I will. That. And actually, it's interesting that you, you mentioned, you know, uh, two new series stories back to back. I mean, we obviously, I think we all know that the, the new series nine will be made up of two parters yeah. by the looks of it. So they're, they're, they're sort of embracing that. Uh, it would be interesting to see how that goes, how they how, if they structure that right. Mm. Only time. What we tell. need is like for for Doctor Who to like the classic series to turn up on Netflix. And then Netflix to do their brilliant little thing where it sort of says we're going to play the next episode in ten seconds, and it chops yeah. the title sequence off, so you don't need to keep on fast forwarding. Yeah. Have you guys got Netflix? You got Netflix in Australia now? Yeah. What a brilliant! Because we've only yeah. just got it in New Zealand, so I'm getting all excited about these special features. But the fact that it chops out the title sequence, you don't have to fast forward past it. Genius! It's great for the kids shows. In terms of title sequences, we haven't touched on this. What do we think of the Howl theme? Favorite, favorite of the lot. Yeah. Just gets the heart pumping. I once sat there and listened to the entirety of the the composition with the TV cranked up three or four times. I'm not entirely sure what my neighbours were thinking, but I think it's it's a cracking piece of music. Mm. Mm. It's it's brilliant. It's so good in its shortened version, and then you hear the long one, and you hear that brilliant bit where it's got the dum 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 Yeah, the key change. Yeah. Oh, God, so brilliantly done. And underneath it is still like the dum 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 still stays. It is brilliant. It's so great. I remember buying the cassette tape for the the Five Doctors soundtrack, which had music from the Fifth Doctor's era. And that particular single, not single, that track, sorry, was the most played. I think I wore that section of the tape out. Um, it's just I love it I love it I might even listen to it tonight the five doctors at the end of it they did the old theme and they merged it with the health and they changed the key and the pitch of the old theme to merge in with the five doctors I might put that at the end of this podcast actually because I've got a copy of it you do that Mark Resurrection of the Daleks is the next one the story that sort of was meant to end season 20 and uh, and, and didn't I, I'm not a, I'm not quite sure that I'm a big fan of Resurrection of the Daleks simply because I think it's too gritty and too grotty and it enjoys its violence a little bit too much. And it misses out Leela, which is unforgivable, to be honest. So, well, that's it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Ian Levine dropped the yeah. ball on that one. But what was that whole sub-story at the end of it where the Daleks were making the copies to go and infiltrate the High Council, the Time Lords? It's like, why Why did you shehorn that in? You didn't need Never it. Never has uh, I Can't Stand the Confusion in My Mind been more apt, really, has it, uh, <laughs> than that. It's, again... You know, amazing things. I remember as a kid, I remember the Dalek being pushed out the top of what I thought was a skyscraper, what I remember to be a skyscraper at the time, and it screaming on the way down. But actually, I think it just, they just sort of like push, <laughs> it just goes off a first floor sort of like balcony and explodes, which is great. But the policeman, uh, the really creepy policeman, listen turning up. Um, the, yeah. the Dalek guards, I mean, it looks crazy now, but the Dalek guards with the, the, eye stalks on the front which is and the balls on their head <laughs> oh yeah that's right um uh, but just yeah. things like that and the really creepy bit i remember as a kid of the of, of davros with the um stuff starting to fly out of him the shaving foam 
as a kid that felt mm. really creepy mm. and the mutants that going around under like the around the warehouse and things like it was but again this is what i think the davison era is it's lots of chunks of little good bits that you remember that are great but just surrounded by a lot of sort of confusion and sort of less blandness that it doesn't there isn't something it's not consistently giving you those things and having the this solid structure around it to make them part of a better thing it's like earth shock again but without the charm yeah, I would say that. Yeah. And that bit that really, I remember just having bad nightmares and dreams about it was when they released that gas, uh, the, the, one of the crew members from the ship just turns around and goes, help me, you know, and, it's, and his face is melting and his fingers yeah. are dropped off. It's interesting that at Press Edge's um, season 22, I think a lot of people say that uh, Sayward took the worst bits of Kays of Androzani and replicated them in... He got the he took the wrong message from Kays of Androzani that, that violence mm. and, and darkness is the way to go and use it for season twenty two. But I think I think he may have been harking back to resurrection more than anything else. Because what you see in Resurrection is what you see in season twenty two. Oh, Resurrection and Attack of the Cybermen, uh, you could you know of a piece. Well they are a sequel to each other in small mm. respect, but they are the same in the same world, definitely. Yeah. yeah. A world of mercenaries and torture and bloody murder. Yeah. And directed by the same guy. Matthew, Matthew Robinson. Robinson. Yep. Yeah. Oh, then. Interesting. <laughs> that's where the parallels are. Then, obviously. And both written by Eric Sayward. One officially, one not unofficially. So strange. I mean, maybe that was the idea was to put this very sort of like um, pacifist, you know, kind, um, sort of mild doctor in amongst this carnage. And yet, it's funny, isn't it? Because maybe that maybe that's the contrast that works. Because if you look at the Baker story, Colin Baker stories that are the same kind of idea put in the doctor amongst the carnage because his doctor is sort of the carnage doctor anyway in a in yes. a way that it does that's why it doesn't work as so well whereas with resurrection you know it the, you definitely know that the doctor's in there he's just in amongst a really bad awful situation um which he's trying to get out of or sort of remedy yes. whereas it, with, with with colin it, baker's doctor it was I don't know, you just felt like he could actually sort of go, oh, actually, this is quite fun, and then just start sort of, you know, punching people out or something. I think you're absolutely right there. It, it's sometimes hard to, you know, to spot the difference between Baker's portrayal and, say, sort of Lytton, for instance, the character that Lytton represents. Can you imagine the sixth Doctor in case of Androzani? He'd be ripping off the robot's arms, pulling off Shara's Jack's face. It would have been a bigger bloodbath. Imagine it, because this is what I didn't realise about Time Lash, is that basically he, he, <laughs> he destroys the monster, or the, the baddie, Borad by kind of just dissing him <laughs> and just saying nobody likes you everyone thinks you're ugly you are hideous you should die <laughs> that's, that's what he does uh, I can't really imagine sort of um, you know the fifth doctor saying that to Shara's Jack and everybody gives the seventh doctor a hard time for talking a Dalek to death the sixth doctor does the same and it's actually worse that's just bullying <laughs> yeah it's, it's exactly really it's bullying. weird it's such a thing and that, that part sorry again jumping completely off topic but I need to talk about this the part in Time Lash where he says I'll do you a deal you can uh, what was it you can you can destroy the the city if you hold a mirror up and let Perry see your face. And if she doesn't scream, then you win. <laughs> but if she screams, then you lose. It's just like, what is this? I don't understand. So bizarre. Sorry, went off on a tangent on Time Lash, but it's it's very, very... Politically incorrect writing at its best. <sighs> it's just very fresh in my head. Sorry, Resurrection of the Daleks, back to it. 
Apologies. I think we talked about it. <laughs> and then the second last story is uh, is Planet of Fire. It's a season of, of farewells, isn't it? Tegan, Turlo, the Fifth Doctor. Mm. In rapid succession, isn't it? There's no real time to sort of uh, grieve or mourn for them. Turlo kind of almost felt like he had his big moment at the end of Enlightenment. I think since then, um, you know, that, that's, that was his big sort of um, character moment. So for him to leave, it kind of felt like he was about ready to leave, didn't it? I mean, it, nothing really happened with Turlo of interest past past enlightenment, yeah. Which is a real pity because as a as a type as a companion, I think he he offered the the, the sort of character that they built for him mm. offered more than the usual. What is that doctor? Oh, I've hurt my ankle, doctor, etc., etc. Yeah. But I just I don't know that the series. I mean, they had these ideas. I mean, again, they've had for this particular era, they had all these ideas about a doctor of contrasts, but they never. The story's never sort of supported that, and you had a good companion like, like Turlo, and again, this the the culture of the show, in a sense, wouldn't support that for any great length of time. A companion had a specific role, but not one like this that was ongoing. I've always thought that Turlo would have been a good um, companion to have with the Seventh Doctor, the sort of like the latter day Seventh Doctor, of sort of him of of the Doctor kind of using. Him, knowing that he's obviously had this sort of shady dark past and then kind of using him as needed, almost as like a hammer mm. to have a go at people and, and sort of use Turlo's dark side for his own benefit. Um, I always thought that'd be quite interesting. Or maybe not. Maybe that's just bad fan fiction. Coming soon to a big finished production. <laughs> yeah. <you>. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, we've already spoken about Case of Androzani. We've waxed lyrical, but... Uh... Just a beautiful, beautiful story. And isn't it brilliant when you think about, you know, the, the Doctor throw, basically throwing away his life to save somebody he barely knows. It's not like he's doing it to save Tegan. He's literally saving it to save a stranger. Um, doing it to save yeah. a stranger. This Doctor always wanted to do the right thing. And events and people around him constantly conspired against that effort, mm. you f- I feel anyway. He was a good Doctor. I just don't think he's he's in the... I don't think he's in the realms of the great doctors, but then maybe he wasn't supposed to be because he was coming after the arguably the greatest doctor of all time. Jono, do we see anything in the current way the the series portrays the doctor's character? Is there a link back to... Uh, the fifth doctor in a way a, a sort of a fallible flawed human doctor i mean we, we, everyone says that tenant was the, the, uh, the most human portrayal since since davison is there anything any any currency in that oh, i think there's i mean tenant himself has said hasn't he that um the fifth doctor was a massive well was his doctor and his mm. father-in-law that weird that's it's quite strange um <laughs> doctor doctor so yeah there seems like a lot this seems like a very confident like a like a, a cocky fifth doctor is probably how mm. you could sum up the a smug one isn't he yeah it's funny it was, i was watching um what did i say love and monsters <laughs> i don't know why i was talking about it um and the 10th doctor is pretty smug and the thing, the great thing about Love and Monsters was, and I forgot about this until watching it again, is that he's hardly in it. Um, so it's actually like a nice little um, sort of breather from him because the Tenth Doctor can kind of be quite in your face and, you know, constantly there and constantly loud. Um, there, aren't, there isn't much quiet time with the, with the Tenth Doctor, but I think 
Yeah, I think there's definitely, if, if the fifth doctor was a bit more smug, a little bit more sort of confident and wore suits rather than cricket vests, then that potentially is your 10th doctor right there. I mean, as you said before, Mark, that, you know, Doctor Who in the classic era very rarely embraced any sort of emotional uh, ethos. So where we saw a, a sort of a, a, you know, a weaker or more fallible doctor in the fifth doctor, nowadays it's emotions are everything in the new series you know you can't turn a corner without tripping over someone's emotions um so obviously you know regardless of whether the doctor is alien he's he's been brought down to our level he has to deal with you know emotions you know does he love rose he loves rose uh the sort of things that are going on with uh with um with amy they're the sort of things that uh have been ramped up a little bit or amped up in, in the more modern take of the show does he love tegan no no that's fan fiction <laughs> That's fan fiction. I'm sure there were many articles about it. There was, I remember one, reading one years ago. It might have been a licensed denied book it was reprinted from, where I thought, yeah, that um, the Tegan and the Fifth Doctor were not lovers. But... What? <laughs> they had the hops for each other. I'll try and dig it out. No, don't. <laughs> try and bury it. That might have been a memory cheater. Burn. Burn that book, Mark. Burn that book. And do we have anything to say about uh, Davison's return very briefly in Time Crash, uh, written by Moffat and you know featuring Tennant? I weirdly didn't think it was very Fifth Doctory. I found um, his portrayal to be not very Fifth Doctory at all. But I love it. I love Time Crash. I think it's brilliant. But I, I don't know. It just it didn't feel quite right when he was sort of starting to talk about the Linda lot and all that kind of stuff. It just. It, it doesn't really sort of feel like something the Fifth Doctor would say. It sounded a bit sort of angry and a little bit sort of, you know, frustrated. Swami. Yeah, yeah. Whereas whereas yeah. the Fifth Doctor would be is you know he's he's nice. He's, he's <laughs> the Fifth Doctor's never really been horrible. Um, he's been a bit ill-tempered at times, but he's, mm. he's sort of more salt rather than sort of get ranty about anything. But it's interesting because Moffat is clearly a fan of the Davison era and the fifth doctor in particular because I watched that documentary uh, come in number five which is on the resurrection of the Daleks DVD apparently the seeds of, that, of time crash were planted when uh, Tennant and Moffat were on the source I believe had a, a drinking session it might have been at Glastonbury so um, that's how that that whole time crash um, special was uh, concocted the only way that the new series would acknowledge a past doctor would be in a small little skit mm like that Children and Ian special because the handbrake was slowly coming off the uh, the embracing of the old series we had the Sarah Jane in, in series mm. two. So this was, I think, the only way they could get an old Doctor in without upsetting the new series too much, have a little scared and then move on. Mm. But like you, John, oh, I loved it. And, oh, look, I was a bit emotional watching it. I'll, you know, my cold dead heart was quite touched by it. And, the, and you know, Moffat was saying, oh, my love too long ago... There's some great lines mm, in that, yeah. yeah. Again, it works on that nostalgia feeling again, doesn't it? Like Tom Baker and Day of the Doctor where oh. everybody choked up. So, um, yeah. I choked up big time. I'm a big old sook. <laughs> See, that's, that's, it's those moments. I think those moments also are maybe something to do with what we were talking about before about being almost sort of saying goodbye to that old fandom. And I think mm. when you have moments like that where it's, it's a pure acknowledgement to... To fans of the old series, you know, who've who've continued the journey into the new series, that I think it's, I think this makes it all the more touching, is that it's it's meant for you. It is actually meant for you, and it's something that you will understand. And you you need to be an an old school fan to actually really 
get all the feels, you know? You're right. And of course, Davison's now found a second career uh, hosting, as you said before, the Doctor Who Symphony Spectacular, mm. where if you think 20 years previously, he was uh, going around saying in the infamous uh, The Doctor's DVD or video that it, it was crap. Mm. Was he talking about the series or was he actually talking, just talking about Time Flight? I can't remember. <laughs> I, so we interviewed him. He, when, when he was over here, we did a quick interview and you can, you can just hear a little plug. You can go and look on the ZeusPod SoundCloud page and it's sitting right there. But um, we, we had 15 minutes with him. Um, very nice guy. He'd been doing interviews all day. So um, it was nice for him to fit us in. And the, one of the questions I asked was, is there a story that you look back now and you wish you could sort of um, redo or, you know, and he just said time flight. He said, I wish we had another hour in the studio with time flight and then we could have actually, it, it wouldn't have been perfect, but it would have been better than it was. And it just sounded like they just had a no time in those days to actually make anything perfect. And that's the great pity of it, isn't it? I mean, Doctor Who's a science fiction show and it relies on, you know, back then it relied on a very limited budget to realise its special effects mm. where perhaps they shouldn't have, you know, tried to push the boat out as far in that and just concentrated on story. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? Every single story, apart from, I guess, Black Orchid, uh, is revolve, revolves a lot around the special effects. There aren't mm. many that are just kind of sort of nice you know, good old horror stories or something like that, that or a good old ghost story. Well, when you look at something, I mean, I'm going to go on again, but the horror of Fang Rock has, what, two special effects shots, and the rest of it relies on mood and atmosphere and rising tension. Yep. Yeah. Um, you, you, you could... They're the keys, I think, to the better Doctor Who, and I, I think in some stories like, you know, Warriors of the Deep, we've mentioned before, completely misses that, when in the script, it says that you can have that sort of, that, that sort of atmosphere... Which would have immeasurably improved what we mm. got, but uh, lost in translation, Rob. Oh yes, yes. It's it's just 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 a little bit sad. I mean, uh, we're coming to the point where we're going to sum up the era anyway. Because Davison now has also become the de facto classic series ambassador, hasn't he? Tom Baker is, let's be honest, he's slightly older and he's a bit harder to stage manage. Mm. I remember going to the US, the um, the fiftieth anniversary convention where it had all the you know the four classic doctors. <laughs> Colin Baker, Sylvester McCoy, Peter Davison all sit very close to each other. Colin and Tom Baker is sitting away from them, almost looking away from them, looking at the audience. And he's looking around going, you know, who are these other people, I suppose. But um, yeah, so obviously uh, Davison is a lot easier to stage manage. Um, and you couldn't get Colin Baker or Sylvester McCoy hosting the Symphony Spectacular because they're affected by baggage of their eras of their mm. show. They're not particularly well remembered. So... I think by default, um, Davison's become the, the go-to classic series yep. guy. And it's been good for his career as well because he's been able to write and direct a piece of work which he probably wouldn't have never had the chance to do if it wasn't for Doctor mm. Who. So we're now moving to the point where we can sum up uh, this episode with regards to the Davison era. What, what do we think, in summary, of the Davison era? Jono, if you want to go first. Very, very fond memories, but in looking at it as a whole, a bit lacking. Um, and, and the only way I can really sort of it, it, sort of s s summarize that is to go back on what I've been saying, which is there are moments of the Davison era which will which are burned into my head that freaked me out as a kid that I just will remember for the rest of my days. Um, I just wish the rest of the era was of the same quality as those moments, and that it would have been outstanding. But money scripts um 
it just didn't quite reach them all up to that level, which is a shame. But there are some truly fantastic stories in the Davidson era, which I adore. Mark? A lot of my view is coloured by nostalgia, like Jono said. Really, the Davidson era, um, it's... It was Doctor Who for the Buck Rogers generation, wasn't it, really? It was glitzy space adventures. But is it perfect? No, it's not. But, again, I can I can sit down and watch a Davison episode and, and, and one episode or two episodes at a time, not the four. And, yeah, I can pick its faults. But like a lot of Doctor Who, you watch it with, with nostalgia and you have a lot of love for, love for it. And sometimes I can't divorce myself of that. Uh, and as for me, I think that uh, aside from some impediments that were, were important, like the character of Adric... JNT's whole approach to the show, Eric Sayward's uh, writing for the era. I think that I mean I, I too have a lot of nostalgia for it, a lot of fond memories. I think his I think Davison's performance was more or less of a piece, and I think at the contrast after seven years of Tom Baker was definitely very welcome. And even if you know some of the lesser stories were particularly less, um, I always mm. find that Davison's uh, performance. Uh, makes it watchable makes makes even those you know bad stories watchable and um, i mean you know there are probably three or four stories in that particular three-year run which i would you know are stone cold classics for me uh you know andrazani earthshock uh stories like that frontios are very well written very well played and within the the limits of a tv production um you know reasonably very well directed so uh, I have a lot of yeah. fond memories of, of watching it. I have a, a lot of, you know, uh, nostalgia and sentiment for it. And it's great, you know, that after a period away from it, that Davison has come back and embraced it. It's just, uh, it's validation in a sense for him. And, and the way the public has embraced him at all these symphonic uh, extravaganzas is, is wonderful as well. So, uh, you know, Valet the Fifth Doctor. <laughs> And now it's time for our Who Knows segment where we ask our victim, I mean, sorry, our guest, to guess the Doctor Who story based on comments that have been left on YouTube. So, Jono, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, number one, there's 10 questions, by the way. So, number one is, the Doctor is right. What Susan needs is a jolly good smack on the bottom. That would be Dalek Invasion of Earth. Well done. Number two, Dick Cheney's Dream Robots. So are they robots that accidentally shoot other people in the face? Um, which robots do that? I don't think it would be the robots of death, would it? No, they're not very Republican. Um, no idea. Okay, that's actually the Dominators, John. I'm surprised you didn't get it. Oh, what? These are verbatim off YouTube, okay? I'm not making any of this up. Okay, number three. You just can't be a fan of new and old who, can you? You can't just watch these videos without the self-appointed Doctor Who elite leaving hateful remarks, comments which scream give me likes about RTD and Moffat, which nine times out of ten have almost nothing to do with the video at hand. It's such a shame. I love Joe's exit, and I love Rose's exit. I nearly love every Doctor Who episode, and I've seen them all in case you're wondering. Sue me. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, has he stopped writing yet? Oh, God. Uh, So... I guess Green Death. Green Death. Absolutely right, Jono. Right. It's actually Green Death. Well okay. done. I'm, I'm glad you picked that up. Okay. Number four. Tom Baker would have made an excellent Willy Wonka. It must be a season 17. So let's say let's say Destiny of the Daleks. Jono, it's Robot. Oh. Okay. Number five. This is another long rant. I just picked out the ranty ones. I apologize. <laughs> From the talons of Wang Chiang to this shite in five short years. 
I'm beginning to wonder whether JNT ever bothered to go to the cinemas and watch 2001, Planet of the Apes, Star Wars, Close Encounters, Alien, etc. Time Flight. Nearly. Kinder. Oh. Ooh. Yes. Shite's quite a strong word for Kinder. It's... Yeah, I know. Anyway. It's YouTube for you. Talk's funny, don't he? Hold hard. This hard enough? Ladies and gentlemen, I present the worst ever Doctor Who extra. Are they meant to be Geordie? What? These lines are actually in an episode that you're trying to guess. Classic series? Yes, absolutely. Do you want a clue? Yes. Season 22. Um, is it Mark of the Runny? Absolutely. Oh, right. that one. Oh. The, the extra goes, hold the... hard. Yeah. Colin Baker seems a lot shorter for some reason. Uh, that would have to be surely the end of Day of the Doctor. No, it's actually Dime and the Rani. Oh. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> uh, okay. William Hartnell did not die for this. Peter Kay views this as one of the lowest points of his career. I can't imagine why. Love and Monsters. There you go. You were talking about it before. I watched it today. And actually, it's 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 great. People shouldn't be so hard on that story. It's a lot of fun. And just remember, William Hartnell did not die for this. Okay. <laughs> He's like... I thought you were about to get into Dimensions in Time. <laughs> No, that's give me some fodder for next time. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. I've never seen it from the outside, so he doesn't remember about the Metacrisis Doctor. I've never seen it from the outside. So he doesn't remember about the Metacrisis Doctor. Okay. Um, time of the Doctor? Nearly. Day of the Doctor. Because remember when 11th and 10th Doctor meets and um, 11th Doctor goes, I've never seen it from the outside. Proper skinny or something like that. Oh, I see. All right. Okay, and the next one, I think, is written by Rob. The entire scene is utter bullshit. The guards are perhaps the worst we've seen in Doctor Who's history. They know she is dangerous, yet they only just decide to move just as they're about to die, and she escapes in the most bullshit way possibly conceived in the show's history. So Moffat can have what he wanted done. That's hack writing at its worst. Moffat is a definition of an insipid hack. F him. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Rob, Melvin. <laughs> is that Time of Angels where she opens the airlock? River Song? Nah, it's Death in Heaven. The guards only move. Which was. Is this. Oh, when she's in the yeah. hangar. How is many that, times you watched that episode? Death in Heaven. Yeah. Uh, I watched Dark Water a lot because I loved it. Death in Heaven twice, maybe three times. Oh, more than us. Okay. <laughs> Excellent, Jono. So you have had one, two, three, four, five, six. So six out of ten, Jono. Well done. Did I beat Andrew? No. Oh, bugger. Well, he has written for the show, isn't he? So, exactly. Yeah. So uh, no prizes, just the uh, glory of uh, getting six out of ten. I I'm the top New Zealander. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We had to win something. <laughs> Should we bring up the World Cup, shall we? No. <laughs> <laughs> I had hoped that New Zealand would actually come close to winning, but sadly it wasn't the case. Talk about a backhanded compliment. <laughs> I'd hoped that New Zealand would come close to winning. Actually, that came out wrong, didn't it? I'd hoped that New Zealand would win to teach the arrogant Australian cricket team a lesson. That's sincere. That is sincere. Uh, yeah. Well. But it didn't happen. Yeah. Now, I, I think, Jono, before we, uh, before we let you go and finish up, uh, we should allow, allow you to plug... Uh, Zeus Pod, where can discerning Doctor Who listeners and fans uh, find your podcast? You can find us on iTunes just by searching Doctor Who Zeus Pod and also at soundcloud.com forward slash Zeus Pod as well. Um, we're on Twitter as well, which is at the Zeus Pod and uh, currently coming out once a month and uh, once season nine, sorry, series nine, 
starts again we'll be back to once a week oh, oh brave man yep it's happening i'm doing it just save him up like we do and just get him over and done with the first 20 minutes and move on i like it shall we say goodbye to Jono and mark yes thank you very much for appearing on our podcast Jono. my pleasure greater fun thank you so to round off i've been mark and i've been rob and i've been Jono. keep punching, punching. You've just listened to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the podcast that loves talking about Doctor Who. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at 42todoomsday at gmail.com. We can be reached at facebook.com forward slash 42 to Doomsday. If brevity is your game, we can be found on Twitter at 42 to Doomsday. Please check out our blog, 42todoomsday.wordpress.com, where Mark and I occasionally have something interesting to say. Aside from iTunes, you can listen to us via Stitcher and Player FM. If you enjoyed listening to us, leave a review on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. Have a great week. We'll speak with you again soon.